The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. More companies will be able to compete for small business contracts. The Small Business Administration's final rule to implement the 2018 Small Business Runway Extension Act is in effect as of Monday. NextGov reports the SBA will measure each small business's revenue for a period of five years instead of three years. The Treasury Department's close to wrapping up tests on a grants payment capability based on blockchain. Innovation Program Manager Craig Fisher says the program lets the agency track money from award to final grantee. FCW reports Treasury should finish the project by the end of the month. The Transportation Department has new principles for vehicles testing and safety across the government. The agency says its top three interests are protecting users and communities, promoting efficient markets, and facilitating coordinated efforts. Feds Group reports more than 80 companies test automated vehicles now. The Public Buildings Reform Board has a list of 12 federal buildings across the country it thinks the government can sell. The goal is to save money on operating costs. Angela Stiles is on the Public Buildings Reform Board, partner at Aiken Gump, and Adam Bodner is the executive director of the board. Folks, thanks very much for coming on the program. It's great to see you. Uh, Angela, I'll start with you. What's, you, you have, this is your second list that you've submitted to OMB. What are the main differences between the first list you submitted and list number two? We took off two properties that we didn't think we were going to be able to get through in the time frames that we have. So it's essentially the same 12 properties that we were really focused on in our kind of quarter of 450, uh, 500 to $750 million in proceeds. Adam, give me a thumbnail here of the work that your board is doing. What's the mission? What are you charged with doing? And what's the timeline look like? Sure. The, the, the mission is really to look at uh, underutilized or unnecessary federal real estate and kind of expedite its disposal. Uh, and the, the, the law that set us up, the, the Federal Assets Sale and Transfer Act, gave us some authorities or gave the government some authorities that it doesn't typically have. And so it enables us to kind of go, I'll quote, straight to sale with some of the properties rather than through the, the normal federal disposal process. And I think it's nice because it also gives us some authority to start reforming, starting to transform how we manage the whole um, federal portfolio of both own properties and lease properties. And, you know, we're able to develop recommendations for both managing the properties as well as getting these to sale quickly and, you know, getting some proceeds back and some win-wins for the federal government and the local communities where some of these buildings are. Yeah, when you were in the program talking about this the last time, Angela, that's what struck me about this effort is that there, there's both, it strikes me there's both a short-term and a long-term view here. The short-term view is this list that we could work on today. The long-term view is overall what does the process look like, what does the portfolio look like, and what should it look like, and how do you get from one to the other? Am That's I exactly that right? right. And so the first list of 12 properties will give us proceeds to actually help us transform the process going forward and to sell and redevelop and to really take different approaches you know, with Adam and our staff and working with all of the federal agencies to really make this look and, look and feel and be different for the federal workers too. Better space. Let's mm -hmm. not have you in a building that's not earthquake proof and that has asbestos in it. What do you see as the long-term job of the agencies to help you do what you need to do, Adam? 
It, I think we're going to have a, I'd like to think it's going to be a really symbiotic relationship where we can leverage the work we did, the first tranche of properties and the money we earned from that to help do consolidation planning and programs for them to help them relocate to better facilities. And so the more they can help us and come up with the strategic plans and the consolidation planning, we can then use our um, authorities and kind of turn those into reality. Give me some examples of the 12 buildings that are on this list. Um, a, a perfect example is in Laguna Niguel, California. There's an old, old building that is not earthquake proof mm -hmm. and that has asbestos in it. Um, you've got uh, USCIS, um, Department of Homeland Security folks in there. They need a new building. It's on 90 acres in the middle of Laguna Niguel. You know, we need to sell that. We need to figure out a new place for these people, new building, new location in the same city because the city wants, you know, those those federal employees and they want to be there too. Mm -hmm. So you know, it will be transformational for them. That's an interesting selection because I know that area well, having lived in Laguna Niguel in the early uh -huh. 90s, 90 acres there is tremendously valuable to the federal government because the place that I lived in Laguna Niguel was two miles from the beach. So that's tremendously valuable property that somewhere in Orange County you could relocate those people into a better facility. Absolutely, and the community wants it. They mm -hmm. don't want an old federal building and a chunk of land sitting there where they want to redevelop it. Mm -hmm. And that's what's different about what we're doing is we're able to work with the local congressman, Congressman Ruda, and we're able to work with the community. And that's what these guys have been spending a lot of their time doing is doing something different than the federal government has done before, really facilitating a win for the community as well as you know a win for the federal employees and the federal government. I mentioned the first and now the second list. First list you had 14 properties I believe. This one has 12. What material are you supplying with the list of properties that you're recommending so that OMB and GSA understand the reasons why you think these properties should go? I can go? talk to that and the, the key for anyone evaluating it uh, particularly OMB is, is it sellable? Are there any problems with the property itself? Are there any political issues with the agencies? And then are we accounting for all the costs that the government might encounter? Are we estimating that accurately? And then is it going to be in the financial best interest of the government? So it's it sounds like the value of the land, the location of it are important factors. Are availability of other federal buildings or other possible locations for federal buildings part of the criteria Absolutely, too? Absolutely, because most of the people don't really want to move far. They mm -hmm. live in those communities. They want to continue working in those communities. And we have a full report. It's on um, PBRB.gov. So full lengthy report about how we how we got there. What comes next? What uh, happens after OMB reviews this list of 12 and decides how to move forward? Well, we actually go forward with working to sell these properties. Um, and then we also have two more tranches of properties over the next five years. What, what's the, what, do we have a sense of how long that list might be, Adam, or does that just depend on the capacity that you have between now and then? It, it, it's really the latter, but, but we want to have a, we want to show progress with the first one and, and really make it a, a pretty um, substantial list for the future rounds. We have better, oh, sorry. Uh, no, well, there's a lot of, uh, capability and in, in, uh, out there. There's a lot of um, possibilities. And that's where I wanted to finish. We have about a minute left. What do you think the potential scope of your work will be when it's all finished? Either one of you can take that one. Well, I mean, our statute has this, what, around $7 billion plus in sales, but I think it's transformational. I really think this, by being an independent federal agency, we're just able to work with the agencies, members of Congress, local communities, um, to come up with the best solution where nobody's had that mission. There's no agency that's really had that mission before. You see that as well? I do, and, and if you have sort of a true revolving fund with the proceeds that you make, 
the possibilities for future consolidations and improvements in the federal workspaces is limitless. Adam and Angela, thanks both very much. Great to have you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Up next, a new year and new trends in contracting. Straight ahead on Government Matters, driving change all across the government. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. Federal agencies spent more on services in fiscal year 2019 than they ever have before, and that trend is likely to continue through fiscal 2020 and beyond. Tony Towns Whitley is president of U.S. Regulated Industries at Microsoft. Tony, welcome, and thanks for coming on the program. I imagine one of the trends that you're going to be seeing in 2020 and beyond is work on JEDI, which is uh, <laughs> really a big win for you and your team. What are what are the big trends, though, that you're seeing across government? Well, it's good to see you again. Thank and yes, you. a lot's happened since I was here with you before yes. about a year ago, Francis. Yeah. So. First of all, we're deeply excited about and totally committed to Department of Defense and bringing that technology, particularly uh, in the current geopolitical environment, to sort of our service uh, members, male and female. Um, but what we're seeing in terms of trends is, and I would compliment DOD as an agency and there are many others, is what we would call a trend towards tech intensity, mm -hmm. defined as both the ability to quickly acquire state-of-the-art technology, which we think is going to be critical going forward, as well as the ability to build digital capability that's unique for the specific agency or mission, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got to be able to acquire quickly and build. And then we put that in Microsoft in a sort of an equation that says that um, adoption times capability to the power of trust. How do you build trust in the technology? How do you ensure that it doesn't uh, challenge any security posture? How do you ensure that you've got uh, individuals that know how to use the technology correctly? So it's really this that we see agencies adopting. About a year ago, we did a study of uh, tech adoption across government. And really the three findings were, it is very difficult for agencies to keep up with the pace of technology, the, mm -hmm. how many things change and are introduced in emerging technologies. It's difficult to get the understanding and competency of what they're acquiring. How do I understand artificial intelligence versus internet of things? And, and then really the third was, how do they have mechanisms to collaborate with industry in an appropriate way that are not always competitive, but help them learn and engage and shape better RFPs and procurements. And so we're working on all those fronts, mm -hmm. quite frankly, to engage. I want to come back to that mechanisms one in yeah. particular, but I mentioned that, you, or I note that you use the words ability to quickly acquire. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you have a little bit more confidence than a lot of people do in the department's ability rather than just calling it a desire to do that. That, that's kind of where a lot of people see the department. Yeah, well, I mean, I think for, and I can name agencies, not, not only Department of Defense, but across the federal government that are really trying to lean in and understand what, and they're bringing, if you would say, you can almost look at a critical success factor for a good procurement, bringing multiple disciplines to the table from the mission, from the tech side, engaging. We did this with the IRS just recently. Mm -hmm. We had deep workshops on trying to understand not only a lift and shift kind of culture, but looking at the art of the possible, mm -hmm. because that's really the requirement of tech providers. Not just lift and shift or selling updates, but what's the art of the possible? How do we go forward? Mm -hmm. And getting more folks engaged in that early so that you can shape, and really quite frankly, not trying to dictate an outcome in a procurement, really focusing on, hey, here's our mission. Let's learn together. Mm -hmm. And that's the environment that we think produces the best 
for both sides. What you're getting at is really the core difference in what I see in procurement between today and say 10 years ago, which was, especially in information technology, but not exclusively, the agencies didn't even always know in those meetings what questions to ask. Exactly. Now I hear from you and many others across industry, agencies know what they need and they know what they need to ask and they're seeking the right answers, I guess. Is I that, think, so. is that, I th I think that it's too? improving. And look, there's a role for te big technology to play as well. We need to educate as best we can in a non, if you will, uh, procurement environment mm -hmm. what's out there. For example, you know, Microsoft runs an AI for business school just for leaders in, in government to understand what is AI, how is it evolving, what are the risks, what are the opportunities, and, and others are in this space trying to educate. Look, I think the other pieces procurements have to be uh, if you will, designed with outcomes in mind, and then you have to give the private sector the opportunity to show and display all that they have to, all that they have within their portfolio. Finally, security is a big concern. So, as you know, certification, security, governments trying to balance the opportunity with the security constraints that they have, and this is where you know companies that like like mine that invest a billion dollars a year on cyber. We have to demonstrate through certifications and compliance that we can meet those. And I think that's got to be a continuing part of procurement going forward. So we'll go back then to that conversation about mechanisms oh. to communicate the kind of information that you just talked about. Yeah. What's the government doing well at providing those mechanisms? What is government not doing as well as they maybe could? And what can you do from your side to facilitate that transfer of information that maybe you're not as a company or you as part of the industry that serves government can do better? Yeah. So first let's start with what's government doing sort of well with mm -hmm. those mechanisms. I'll get a couple examples. I look at the VA and access to care, which is basically an online tool that they were looking to procure to give veterans the opportunity to understand wait time at a hospital, what are the best facilities. They literally gave a full understanding and scope of what they were looking as an outcome to the community for us to all engage and ask lots of questions and engage ahead of the procurement. Now we, Microsoft is providing that capability, but it was the collaboration up front mm -hmm. and, and creating that in the procurement cycle, a collaboration up front. Then I look at sort of the Department of Interior with their, with their drone program, just a phenomenally interesting in the research side on what you can do in terms of not only drone data capture, but then the opportunity on the back end to say, how do you visualize that data in a way that drives efficient decision making? They didn't just look at the first part of the problem, they looked all the way through data capture and they really influenced and really pushed for open source, open AIs, all these kinds of capabilities. Um, I think when the government looks to procure not only a technology, they want to know, are you bringing partners? What kind of ecosystem are you bringing? They want to know, do you meet my security compliance uh, requirements? They want that to be really front and center. They also want to know that you're interested in the long game. And where agencies do this well, we seem to show up better. On the side of private sector, we too, beyond just educating about our capability, we've got to provide many more options. For us, it's open APIs and open source for us, it's things like a data center exchange, a turnkey opportunity for the government to not, to not necessarily focus on data center, but a turnkey opportunity to fully lease a data center. These are sort of a la carte menu options that we've got to be able to provide government so they don't have to be experts in every specific field of technology. That's our day job. That shouldn't have to be theirs. Tony Towns-Whitley, a lot more I'd love to cover. We're out of time. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Francis. Up next, unintended consequences for acquisitions at the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's moving the timeline and the trend line? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. The Pentagon's Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, Ellen Lord, has new guidance for middle-tier acquisitions, but experts worry the new policy could slow down rapid acquisitions and not speed them up. Eric Lofgren is a research fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University, writing in Defense News about this issue. Eric, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. You're welcome. What is a middle-tier acquisition to kind of set the framework of what we're looking at here? So, yeah, back in uh, the 2016 Nat National Defense Authorization Act, Congress gave the Department of Defense some authorities, a couple different rapid acquisition pathways, one for rapid prototyping, another for rapid fielding. And what makes it rapid is uh, that these programs are exempted from the usual requirements and the usual milestone acquisition processes. And just to give you a little indication, the requirements process tends to take about two years. It can go up to five years, potentially more. And on the milestone review side, that's several months of uh, reviews going on there, potentially a year or more. Mm -hmm. And it can involve potentially 50 or more offices from around the Department of Defense to get in on these programs. So it's a significant reduction in the regulations that uh, the programs have to follow. And so when Congress passed those authorities back in late 2015, uh, they expected some guidance to come out from the Department of Defense on how these uh, middle-tier acquisitions will be run. And four years later, there was still no guidance, right? And so there was a lot of questions up in the air. And so uh, Congress decided in the, in the FY 2020 National Defense Authorization Act that they would withhold 75% of the middle-tier funding unless, until uh, guidance came out. And so 10 days after that authority, or after that law was passed, uh, the new guidance came out, and that's what we're here to talk about. So you write in your piece about the authorities. For several years, acquisition authority had been delegated down to the services. While the services only managed 48% of major programs in 2014, the figure grew to 90% in 2019. Now, what you just described and that transition there, all happening at the same time as a lot of change in the office at the top of OSD the devolution of the acquisition technology and logistics job to acquisition and sustainment, which is Ellen Lord, and uh, R&E, which you write about in here. How does all of this fit together? It sounds like an awful lot of transition all at the same time. Right, so there's some restructuring in the office of the Secretary of Defense at the same time that they were delegating authorities down to the services. So many of the programs were delegated down to the services and then even from the services down to the, uh, the program executive office and program office level. So that was happening um, at the same time that AT&L got split up into uh, Undersecretary for Acquisition Sustainment and Research and Engineering. And so what this policy does here, it does a couple things. It, clarifies the roles and responsibilities primarily at the Office of Secretary of Defense level and then it also provides clarity on the documentation that these military uh, programs require and with respect to the authorities and the roles and responsibilities uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, Acquisition Sustainment comes out on top as mm -hmm. kind of in control of the middle tier program they can uh, she can pretty much um, take away the authority for any program that's military and for the largest program she has to approve it before the fact mm -hmm. and so she also will have um, an advisory board is what they call it from different officials from around the office of the secretary of defense so it brings in a lot of players and it gives them more of the right to go and request detailed information from the program offices and that also gets a lot of the functional areas and the services 
um, kind of involved too. So it brings in a lot more players potentially. And we've been seeing that transition towards delegation to the services. And this and a number of other um, policies that are coming out tend to start showing that shift back towards uh, the higher levels, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So the title of your piece in Defense News is Too Many Cooks in the DOD, New Policy May su Suppress Rapid Acquisition. How is that happening among all, with all of these moving parts that you're talking about? Strikes me that that maybe is the issue right there. There's just a lot of stuff happening in a lot of different places that could be dragging this process out. Is, am I reading it right? Right. And it's not that the Office of Secretary of Defense is going to start micromanaging these programs today. Um, uh, that might not happen for some time, but it gives them the, the leverage to get in there. But it's also the documentation. So a lot of the documentation from the milestone acquisition process is also crept back in. You need cost estimate, test plans, uh, sustainment plans for fielding uh, systems. You need all sorts of other parts like affordability analysis schedules and all that lined up. And so that brings a little bit more of the traditional system back in. And even on the requirements front, the services have to create a new process for requirements for approval within six months. And so you see more documentation, and it's also on the contractor, for example, cost data reports and software reports, earned value management, for example, many expected it to be exempted from middle tier, but it might not. So that brings in some more of these uh, processes back in. And one of the really big things I would like to highlight here is that back in 2016 NDAA, Congress actually didn't just address the uh, requirements and milestone acquisition process. There was a third part of what we call the Big A acquisition system, which is the program budget process. And they actually provided a rapid prototyping fund in those authorities to be uh, funded through 3% basically of overruns on existing programs. Now, in the FY20 NDAA, uh, Congress actually got rid of the funding mechanism. They didn't get rid of the rapid prototyping fund itself, but it will no longer be funded. So the programs themselves will no longer have a ready pool of funding available for them to go and rapidly uh, go do the programs, and that brings more time to do these approvals at the Office of the Secretary of Defense level and get their documentations in line. Eric, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. We'll be right back. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Yeah. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory, and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. Using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Uh, Jeremy, 
he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with Nest or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already. So it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay. So, Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.